he is your son approved of by you because of the work that you did on his behalf, Jesus. Mm -hmm. Spirit, would you fill him with wisdom and clarity and compassion and ministry? Would you allow for him to minister to us your good news in the midst of a very hard subject? Would you cause for our hearts to be uh, tender, to be uh, compassionate, to be open, even for healing uh, to happen tonight? Mm. You're a God of healing. So someone who's here that might still be walking with hurts and harm, would you bring healing to mm. their hearts this evening? And so we love you. We submit this evening to you. It's all yours. Mm. And uh, we give you all the glory for it. Spirit, fill Matthew now. Amen. 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 Thanks, Dwight. It's um, good to be back. So I was here last February. Um, was anybody, be good for me to know, who was here last year for the workshop? It's a good number of you. Okay, great. So good to be back. I realize that February is a really peculiar time to make an annual trip to the Yukon, but at least it wasn't last week, but it was like negative something, 40 or something like that. So I don't think I'd make that, survive that. Um, but yeah, so as, actually I want to get to know a little bit more. So most of you from Whitehorse know who, so who, who's traveled into Whitehorse to be here? So what? You live in Haynes Junction. Give me an idea. Two hours west. Two hours west. Nice. And I was raised there. You raised there. Okay. Is that relevant? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Anyway, it's good to know. So here, uh, but you're from Whitehorse. You're part of the Northern Collective. Who else is from the Northern Collective? No, not very much. No. No. Who else here from the Northern Collective? Any few people here? Okay. Oh, there's a few. Okay. And then there's a few from here of Mountain View. From the church here? Yeah. Yep. Great. And then anybody else who's not from uh, Wales? Okay. So you drive out that way and pastor out there? Excellent. So I'm guessing from what I can kind of gather, there's lots of small communities, pretty remote, pretty isolated, scattered around uh, the Yukon. Um, and Whitehorse is kind of like the, the main hub, central place where the hospital is and the doctors are and the college is and and Harrison is yeah. so yeah so so great so um it's uh so we started with Acts 29 this ministry called Church in Hard Places and um and really what we're trying to think about is uh, church planting church ministry church revitalization in places where life is just hard and that's a relative term and so like Dwight was saying I travel doing these workshops all over the world. But if I'm in the slums of Nairobi in Kibera, one of the poorest places in sub-Saharan Africa, then you would look at that and you say, okay, that's a hard place. And then you come here and you think, well, you know, is this really a hard place? But it's, it's relative. And so it's, what we're saying is, what does ministry look like in a context where it's just harder to get a job, it's harder to get a decent education, it's harder to get access to good services, it's harder to attend a healthy local church uh, because maybe you're more remote and cut off. It's harder, um, just there's things about life that are hard. And so that's what we want to really focus on, particularly areas of poverty. And again, poverty is a relative term depending where you're at, but um, areas where there's concentrated poverty you tend to see issues, whether I'm in Africa or in Brazil or in Europe or in Canada, you tend to see the same issues in areas of poverty. Often it is, you see a prevalence of mental health issues. 
you see a prevalence of addictions, of the drug, prescription drugs, alcohol. Um, you see a prevalence of um, maybe criminality or gang um, uh, activity, uh, people trafficking. Uh, you'd see a prevalence of abuse, um, abuse in many forms. Now, obviously, that's not to denigrate as we're generalizing there, but I'm talking about what does church look like in a community where that is, is commonplace, um, where that is just a part of life. Um, and so that's going to be in the slums, in the barrios, in the favelas, and in Scotland, we call them the schemes. In the U.S., you call them the projects or um, social housing. In Canada, there's certain pockets of cities and certain communities where that would be true. And whereas most discipleship resources, most conferences you go to, most books that you read um, are not really speaking to those issues um, as it relates to evangelism, discipleship, leadership development, church planting. And so that's why we've started these Church in Hard Places workshops. So last year when you came, that's like uh, kind of, uh, if you like, kind of 101, kind of the basics, understanding poverty. That's what we kind of touched on last year. And this year we're kind of digging in a little bit more deeper into some of those issues related to that. And so that's why we're talking tonight about abuse. It's not an easy subject to talk about. Um, for me, it's not an easy subject for me to talk about. It's part of my own story. Um, and so there's a book that I think we've got one copy up there called The Creaking on the Stairs. Mess McConnell, um, who is the director of Church in Our Places, he wrote his own a story of him growing up in a very abusive home um, and how he came to really reconcile um, how God can still love him, care about him, how God can still be sovereign and on the throne and still king, and yet for him to have experienced such a horrific abuse. What hope is there in the gospel when you've experienced such horrendous um, pain and suffering? It's a question that people in our communities ask. It's a question that maybe you ask, uh, maybe people you know ask. And so we're not going to really be able to get too much into that, but I want to just kind of touch on that tonight. How do we understand? How do we respond to? And what is the role of the church as it relates to abuse? And so that's my goal um, this evening. And so hopefully that kind of sets the framework for us. Uh, there's a movie. Uh, that came out, I think, a few years ago, two or three years ago, called Spotlight. Um, and it recounts the story of, in 2001, um, Marty Barron, the editor of the Boston Globe, he assigned a team of journalists to investigate allegations against John Gigan, a Catholic priest in Boston. Gigan had been unfrocked uh, for molesting more than 80 boys in his time as a priest in that city. So he, so editor Marty Barons has this team, Michael Resendez, Matt Carroll, and Sasha Pfeiffer, and they just go about and they begin interviewing victims. And they try to unseal sensitive documents that the church had sealed under court order. And the reporters, they make it their mission to provide proof that there is a cover-up in the church, a cover-up of the extent of abuse, that it wasn't just about one man. Wherever there's a much broader extent of abuse within the Roman Catholic Church. And what they uncovered was a scale of abuse that was unimaginable. A scale of abuse that was utterly shocking. One of those reporters, Mike Resendez, he said this. He said, it's time 
It's time. They knew and they let this happen. To kids. It could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been any one of us. We've got to nail them. We've got to show people that no one can get away with this. Not a priest or a cardinal or a pope. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to abuse one too. Now the sad and tragic reality, when we think of the word church, many people in our culture think the word abuse, particularly in our day. Many people view the church with a sense of suspicion. That's no doubt true in most of the communities that maybe we're working in. It's true in many in the community I work in. That many have grown, particularly in, in this in this era, in our generation, to view the church with suspicion, to view the church as a place synonymous with abuse. That's tragic. That is tragic. And yet that's the reality of the world we're living in, the time we're living in. Listen to these headlines from just one day. These are headlines from one day of scanning newspapers. November 3rd. Minister convicted, convicted of 1997 molestation of 10-year-old niece. Allentown priest reaches plea deal. Priest has plea deal in harassment case. Minister admits to massage from his accuser. Four local priests defrocked after allegations of sexual abuse. Hurley found guilty of sex abuse. Trinity responds to cover-up investigations. Convicted Milford priests facing sexual abuse charges again. Molester priest in court. One day. That's one day of news headlines. We wonder why people, particularly in communities like ours, begin to view the church with a sense of suspicion, with a sense of almost disgust. These stories are shocking. But they're shocking, not least because of the harm that they have done to the name of Jesus, but also to the reputation of his church. The church that Jesus established, he established it and built it and designed it to be a place of refuge for the broken, to be a place of, of healing, to be a place of where the wounded can come and find hope and recovery. He didn't design his church to be a hiding place for pedophiles and abusers. That's what I want us to think about this evening. Jesus designed his church to be a place of healing, a place of hope, to be a safe place, a place where the light of his gospel and his love is revealed. The church that Jesus built is intended to be the safest place on earth. And it's intended to be a place where we treasure the name of Jesus, not flee from it. And so that's our vision. That's our hope for the church in her places. It's our hope for churches and communities like this, that people look at it, not with suspicion, but look at it as a place of safety, a place of hope. See, the church is our refuge. The church is our refuge. This topic, the church and abuse, it's so expansive that it will be impossible tonight to really do it justice in just one single talk, one single uh, discussion. 
We could speak of the issue of domestic abuse. We could speak about abuse of power. We can speak about sexual abuse, child abuse, how to respond when leaders in a church have committed abuse. We can speak about how to counsel the abused, how to prevent abuse, how to even minister to the abuser. There's so many things that we can discuss. But what I want to do just in this session is particularly focus specifically on child abuse, specifically how the church is intended to be a place of safety, refuge, and healing. I want us to step back and to see how the church is to be a safe place for the vulnerable and a refuge for the abused. So maybe you're here tonight, I don't know all your stories, but maybe you're here tonight and something terrible, maybe traumatic, happened to you when you were a child. It's difficult to talk about it, even as an adult. It's difficult to, to reach back into those part of your memory bank. You wonder, will anybody understand? What's the point of bringing it up? It's too painful. It's too painful to revisit those memories. So why bother? But you know, I know, that deep down, you know that it affects you. It still affects you. You know that there's pain. You know that it's affected the way you interact with others still to this day. You know that it's affected the way you feel about yourself and your own identity. The fear you have of being abandoned, let down by others, of the inability maybe even to trust, the insecurity you feel in your relationship, even in your relationship with God. That traumatic event, although it may have happened, if indeed it has happened for you, many decades ago, those wounds still run deep. The first five years of my life, I suffered and witnessed horrendous physical abuse. At one point, I was smothered with a pillow. I saw my brother being pushed down the stairs until his skull, flesh in his skull, cracked open. I remember hiding under my mum's bed, hearing her scream as she was beaten. My first experience of sex was as a nine-year-old boy in my own bed, being raped by a person I barely knew. I never spoke of it. I never told another soul. I ran and I hid. And in many ways, I continued to run and hide from that point forward. You see, you suffered trauma as a child. You have hidden wounds, hidden wounds that are deep inside, that you feel them, you're aware of them. Think of them as hidden scars, wounds that become scars that just won't go away. Because children who are abused will carry that emotional and mental scar well into adulthood. See, when you're abused in your most formative years of your life, all abuse is terrible. I'm just thinking about childhood abuse right now. When you're abused in the most formative years of your life, it does affect how you go on to establish relationships, friendships. When you're abused by people who are supposed to be caring for you, your own parents, then it greatly affects the way 
you receive nurturing from others because you fail to receive it from the people who are intended to provide it for you. Childhood abuse, the way I can only describe it, is it leaves you feeling disorientated, very disorientated. Nothing makes sense. People around you don't make sense. The things, even relationships, friendships, they don't make sense. It's, it's the most disorientating, dizzying experience. But praise God that for me, the most orientating experience in my life was accepting Jesus Christ as my Savior. As if in that moment, all these, this disorientation, this sense of not knowing who I am or, or accepting who I am, not, knowing, not even being able to make sense of life, in that moment, things came together in a very orientating way. My mum started attending a small little Baptist church in the north of Scotland. Grew up in, in Scotland. There's an older man in that church who's a rugged fisherman. He had a big black beard, one eye. I mean, it's everything you'd imagine a Scottish fisherman to look like. Just rugged fisherman, thick accent. And, but he taught me and my brother the Bible. And he taught it in such a way. He was such a gracious, kind-hearted, affectionate man. And he took me and my brother under his wing. And we were teenagers at the time. And he made the Bible seem real. He made God seem real. You see, I couldn't understand the idea of a father loving me. I couldn't accept the idea of a, a father who cared about me. But when he read the Bible to me, he introduced to me a loving father a caring father, one who is faithful, true to his word, who doesn't abandon his children, one who never wounds, never hurts. This man, his name's Alistair, he was a gentle man. He had an affection. I grew to trust him. The gospel broke into my stubborn, cold, and dead heart. When I was 18, I found Christ. And I found Christ as my hiding place. It's my refuge. And the church became a safe place where I could finally be me, where I could be me with the wounds, where I could be honest with the feelings that I carried. That is not often the story that many people associate with the church and abuse. All too many view the church as an unsafe, even dangerous place. The scandal is that many, many people, many children, have been abused in buildings just like this by men who profess to preach the word. And that is the most disorientating thing. It's not how it's to be. I pray that our churches truly become places of refuge that God has intended for them to be. Because Jesus is our suffering Savior. Jesus knows what it is to be abused. He knows what it is to be abandoned. Jesus is a friend in our suffering. Because there is no suffering that we have experienced that he himself has not also experienced. And there are no scars that we have that Jesus cannot see. 
There are no wounds that he cannot heal. So how do we draw near to Jesus? How do we find him as our hope? For me, and I think for all of us, the way that we truly draw near to Christ, the way that we find healing in Christ, is through a healthy, local, gospel-preaching church where Christ is made known, where Christ is revealed. It was as part of a healthy church that I experienced the love of Jesus. I heard the voice of my Father, and I found a place of belonging. So let me just point out three ways that I believe that God intends for the victims of abuse to feel at ease in his church. So three ways that I believe that God intends for those who have suffered from abuse to find healing, refuge, safety in his church. And then I'll go on to give three ways that I believe the church should be proactively working to protect the abused or children from abuse in our church. So how does God intend for us to feel safe in the church? Well, number one, we need Christ-like leaders. We need Christ-like leaders in our churches. Christ is the head of the church. You see, particularly if you've been abused, you may be tempted to run away from authority. Particularly if you've been abused by a person in authority. Maybe a, a caregiver, a teacher, a parent, God forbid, a pastor, a Bible study leader. If you've been abused by somebody in authority, then the temptation may be to run away from authority, to see authority as intrinsically evil, wicked, the unsafe, to resist any form of leadership, to see anybody in power as being a potential abuser. But the Bible tells us that authority in and of itself is actually inherently good. That we are designed to submit to something. We are designed to submit ourselves to an authority higher than ourselves. The church is under authority. We're under the authority of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, as the Word of God reveals. And we under the authority of the Bible. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus will never abuse his church. So authority is not the problem. Authority is not what's evil. It's the abuse of authority. It's the abuse of a power that is the problem. Ephesians 1 verse 22 says this, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So God placed everything under him. We are subject to an authority. Authority is therefore intrinsically good. So these verses teach us that we're called to submit not to the sinful demands of abusive pastors or people or authority. We're called to submit to Christ, to his word, because of who he is and what he's done. Biblical leaders in healthy churches understand that. If you are a Christ-like leader, then you understand that you are under authority. If you are a Christ-like leader, a pastor, a Bible study leader, a teacher, a, an elder in the life of a local church, then you are to understand, first and foremost, you are subject to an authority greater than yourself. You lead under authority. That's what it means to be a Christ-like leader. We should look to leaders who look 
to Jesus. The church will be a place of safety for us if it is led by men who model the very characteristics of a pastor set out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. It sets out for us, the Bible sets out for us, the model it looks like to be a leader in a church. And it's a man who's gentle, who's kind-hearted, who is patient, who's loving, who's, who's under the headship of Christ. These standards for Christ-like leadership are designed to protect the church from abusive leaders. So the first responsibility we have is to make sure that we're being led by Christ-like leaders. As churches, as pastors, as elders. What does that look like for us? What does it look like to, to be accountable? First to the Christ and to his word, but then to the church. We need to come under the watchful care, love, and compassion of Christ-like leaders. And God provides for us such leaders. That's why it's good that we belong to a church. And it's good that we sit under the authority of godly men, of godly leaders who love us well, who demonstrate compassion and gentleness, who are faithful to Christ and to his word. Let's look for Christ-like leaders. If you're a pastor, then strive to be that. Strive to be that. If you're an elder in your local church, if you're a leader in your local church, then make sure we're asking each other the hard questions. Make sure that we're humble, that we're open to reproof and rebuke and correction. Let's have churches led by Christ-like leaders. Second, if our churches are to be places of safety, refuge, healing, then we need Christ-centered preaching. These may seem like, okay, this doesn't make sense. You're talking about abuse, but why are we talking about preaching? It may seem odd to talk about preaching in a talk about abuse, but the reality is that as a victim of abuse, when I gathered with my church, I needed to hear from God. I needed to hear the very voice of my Father. I didn't need to hear anything else but from Him. I needed gospel-centered, Christ-filled, spirit-saturated words of truth that brought to me hope every week, every time I gathered with my church. Life-giving words, not empty words. Life-giving, gospel-rich words. I desperately need, we desperately need, to hear his voice above every other voice in my head. We all need that. I need to gather with, with people that want to hear his voice. And I need to hear that the word of God is preached. When we preach the word verse by verse, book by book, I want the word of God to be heard, the very character, voice of God to be heard, to drown out the lies that have grown up believing. We desperately need to hear his voice so the other voices screaming at us are silenced, including the ones in our own head that keep us awake at night. I need to know God so that I can make sense of my abuse. We may never understand what has happened to us, Maybe you've been hurt 
maybe not as a child, maybe not in such an abusive way, but maybe you have suffered hurt. And there are wounds in your life. There's tragedy that you've experienced. You may never understand what's happened to us. You cannot make sense of irrational things. We cannot try to find something logical in something illogical. We won't find answers there by trying to make sense. Why did he do this? Why do they do this to me? There's no hope from that. But you know where the answers come from? Is that despite all of this, I have a God who loves me, a God who pursued me, a God who redeemed me. When my sin, my sin, my hatred, my bitterness, my anger, my sin nailed him to the cross. You see, as, as painful it is to say this, this is the reality. No matter what abuse I experience in my life, it doesn't compare to the pain of the abuse that my sins afflicted upon Christ in his life. And the reality of that, waking, waking up to my own sin, waking up to who I am before a God, and yet he doesn't ask, why do you treat me that way? He doesn't look at me with hatred and bitterness. My God pursued me with love. My God extended grace and forgiveness. I need to hear the gospel again and again and again. It's our relationship with the living God that defines me now. I'm not defined as a victim. I'm defined as a child of God. That's my identity. That's the, the badge of honor we wear because Christ came for us. As we come to the Word of God, we meet with a loving Father who walks with His people, a loving Father who protects His children, who defends His own against the oppressor. You read the stories in Scripture and you see that again and again and again. And I need to hear the voice of my God. I don't need to hear the voice of a therapist or a self-help group or a recovery program. I need to hear louder than anything the voice of my God saying, but I love you and I died for you. And I'm here. I haven't abandoned you. I will make all things new. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And this is not your home. And every pain that you have suffered in this life will be wiped away when you make it home to the Father's house. That's what we need to hear. Christ-like leaders. Christ-centered preaching. Then third, I need, I need the body of Christ. We need to be part of the body of Christ. You need the church. You need to join and be part of a healthy, local, gospel-centered church. These, these communities, the communities that we're doing ministry in, the, the hard places, think of maybe this place, this city, places, communities scattered all across the Yukon, Hard places where many people may feel unsafe. Many people may feel trapped in darkness. Many people may be living today lacking any sense of hope, any sense of worth or dignity or value. More than anything, we need a church. Desperately, I need a church where the light of the gospel 
breaks into the darkness of the reality of our lives. For some people, church may feel very intimidating. There can be something very daunting about committing to and trusting to a group of people. Maybe you've been hurt by people in a church. Reality is most of us probably have. It's human nature. We hurt each other. We're going to be unfaithful. We're going to be untrustworthy towards each other. We're going to let each other down. That's the reality. But we need the church. The church is never the problem. The church is never the problem. The church is always the solution. The church is always God's intended means by which he will, he will reveal his love and his touch and his care, his voice to his people. I need the church because I desperately need godly, faithful, mature Christians in my life, and you do too, to help us talk through struggles, to make sense of the reality of the life that we're living. Galatians 6 verse 2 instructs us, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. You know what church membership is? Church membership is not just joining a club. Church membership isn't just identifying yourself with a building or a people. Church membership isn't saying these are the people I'm going to commit my tithes and offerings to. You know what church membership is biblically? It's burden sharing. That's what I'm committing to. That's what biblical church membership is. I'm going to share my burdens with these people. We're going to carve them together. And I'm going to share my burdens with them and I'm going to take responsibility for theirs. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. When it comes to sexual abuse, we heal better together in a safe community. We need the church. God knows we need it. That's why he established it. That's why he built it. That's why Christ died for us. That's why he calls it his bride. You need the church. The church needs you. There are people in your church who need you to share their burden, who need you to come alongside them, who need you to provide a safe place for them to open up to. Do not let a fear of rejection or an inability to trust people keep you from what God has for you. God intends for Christians to live in community with other believers. That's his gift to you. That's his way that he's going to minister to you. It's how we experience his love, his care, his compassion. And I didn't experience the gentle hand of a father. I experienced the harsh hand of a father. But every time I step into my church, I feel the embrace of my church members. I feel the gentle hand of my Father. I feel the love and the warmth of my Father, my Father in heaven, who gave that to me as a gift. The people who truly care about me, people who truly love me. That's what the church is intended to be. God intends for Christians to live in community with each other so we might experience His love and His care and His compassion. So let's be convinced of this, that what the hurting, the abused, the wounded in this community, in the community that you live in right now, 
what they need more than your counseling or your therapy group or your self-help book is they need your church. They need a church. And so if there isn't one, then start one. Let us see healthy churches to be a display of the light of the gospel in our darkest places. So three things where God intends for the church to be a place of refuge. Christ-like leaders, Christ-centered preaching, and the very body of Christ extending his love to us. Then how then can we ensure that the church is a safe place? How can we make the church a safe place? Recently, the, there's a survey uh, done by Lifeway in the States of sexual abuse, and it found that 10% of churchgoers under the age of 35 had previously left a church because they felt sexual misconduct was not taken seriously. 10% of those under 35 left their church because they believed that sexual misconduct was not taken seriously. Again, far too many people do not view the church as a place of safety. And that is tragic. We have to be intentional about this. We can't just be uh, flippant or, or casual about this subject. We have a responsibility and a duty of care, not just for the people in our church, but for the witness of Christ to our community. So first step is you need a plan. Have a plan. And use the word safeguarding. I think it's a good word to use. So safeguarding the children under your care. So have a plan for safeguarding the children in the care of your church. If you are elders, leaders of your church, do you have a plan? Do you have a plan? It's an absolute imperative that you have a child protection plan or a safeguarding policy in place. And don't just simply grab policies from another church and paste them into your own church. Wrestle through the needs of your own congregation, of your own community, of your own building, of your own activities. How do you effectively account for those who are in your building? How do you effectively account for the activities that you are carrying out and conducting as a church? Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan to make sure that you know that when children are in your building, they're safe. They're safe. Work hard to clearly communicate these plans. Don't just have a plan and approve it and let it sit on a shelf. Do you actively communicate it to staff, volunteers, parents? Always err on the side of over-communication. Don't just think, oh, we talked about that last year. Is it a part of your new members class? When you're training children's workers, do you mention your safeguarding plan? People have to make sure they've read it and they're signed off on it. Are they conscious of it? Have a plan. Don't just let the policy sit on the shelf. Teach them. Revisit them. Is the plan still working? Is there things that we need to change about it? Have clearly defined and communicated policies around who can work with children and youth and who those workers are accountable to. That's why membership, again, is really important. We don't allow anybody to work with children in our church unless they're members, because when they're members, they're under accountability. We know something about their profession of faith. We know something about their character and they're under accountability in the life of the church. They're subject to the elders. We also carry out uh, background checks on anybody, actually on every member of our church. It's part of our membership class. And we carry out background checks. And every member, and only those who do not have any uh, background of violent 
or uh, uh, abuse are permitted to work in childcare in our church. Do you even know who your members are? You know, most abuse often is committed by people who know the victim. And we, we just think because we're gathering together in a church that we know each other. The thing about abusers, abusers are really good at lying, hiding, deceiving, and manipulating. And so, so do your due diligence in making sure that we're asking the right questions, that we're carrying out the right checks to ensure that the people in your organization are people that you can give an account for. There are organizations that can help you develop a plan. I'm sure there are some in, in Canada. Often denominations are really good at this. So if your church is a part of a denomination, I'm quite sure there's, there's some help that that denomination can provide you in helping to produce a safeguarding plan, even helping you carrying out uh, background checks. Uh, church planters, if you're uh, planting a church, you need to absolutely have a plan before you launch a public gathering. You know, if the where you're meeting, the gathering you're, you're meeting in. Uh, new churches, church plants in particular, we attract some really weird people sometimes. You know, we can attract some crazy people, and we just don't know who they are. And so make sure you've got a plan. Now, don't just think we'll come to this later. And when we're more established or we've got systems in place, as soon as you go public, even when you start having meetings in your homes, you are taking responsibility for the children under the care of the name of your church and the name of Christ that you bear. So have a plan. Number two, implement the plan. Implement the plan. The sad reality is if an abuser wants to abuse, he or she is like a wolf amongst the sheep, slyly and mercifully creeping around, looking for moments to enter the sheep pen and attack the weakest and most vulnerable prey. And far too many churches become sheep pens with the gates wide open, allowing wolves just to prey unnoticed in order to entrap the weakest sheep, often our children. The fact is that in most of our churches, it's too easy for predators to hide in plain sight. Abusers see the church as an easy place to hide. So abuse, as we said, it always requires deception. To be an abuser, you have to deceive. Just because you know each other and are familiar with one another, and you trust each other, that does not mean that you are immune from needing to implement a plan. I'm not saying be suspicious of each other. I'm not saying become cynical and suspicious and fearful of each other. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is have a plan and implement the plan. Protect your children. We must do our best to prevent the unthinkable. Perform all necessary background checks. Check references on any potential staff members or children and youth workers. Appoint someone in leadership who is responsible for ensuring that your plan is being robustly implemented. And that person should not be an elder. Because the elders also need to be submit and subject to that plan. So in my church, I've got a female social worker and a male um, uh, prosecuting attorney who actually prosecutes child offenders. And so and we're pretty well taken care of. Um, <laughs> And so they're responsible for our plan. And if we have a question, or if we've got 
a case, then we, then we let them handle it. Right? We robustly implement the plan. They're the ones who are, who are making sure that you know, the checks are being done. And so have a plan, implement your plan. And then three, respond and report. Respond and report. What we do, what do we do when the unthinkable happens? The tragic truth is that the abuser, the predator, just won't be stopped no matter how strong a plan you have in place. The unthinkable may happen. So we must know what to do when the unthinkable happens. I've experienced this in my own church, and um, I'll share about that later on during the discussion. If someone shares with you that they've been abused by somebody in your church, then you need to ask questions. You need to listen to them. People who have been wounded by sexual abuse need someone to listen to their story and take them seriously. Now your first response would maybe to find their claims unbelievable, and so you don't believe it. And this may be an understandable response, particularly if you know the one who's being charged by the abuser, by the abused. But the worst thing you can do for somebody who's bringing to you claims and accusations is to disregard what they're saying, is not to listen to them. You must listen. You must take what they're saying seriously. Just as you would with somebody in great physical pain. We must emphasize. We must pray with them. We must weep with them. Dignify their story. Whatever it is they're sharing with you. No matter how unbelievable it may sound. Dignify their story. Make them assured that you are taking seriously what they are telling you. Make sure that you know that you are taking what they're saying dead serious, serious and you are going to act on it. Regardless of the outcome, you're not presuming innocence or guilt at this moment, but you're listening, emphasizing, you're taking seriously what's being said. Way too many churches are often caught off guard by this because they hear from somebody and then they disregard what they heard and they do nothing about it because what they heard sounded so unbelievable that they just assume it's made up, or it's created, it's just untenable. And so the mistakes that churches make, from, from what I can discern, two things. One is they just disregard the claim. Or two, they keep it in-house. They deal with it in-house. They don't take it seriously enough. Remember this. It is not your job to uncover what has happened. You are not the investigator. You are not a lawyer. You are not a doctor. In all cases of abuse, illegality has occurred. No matter what it is, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, child abuse. This is always a legal matter. So you're not bound, even as pastors, you are not bound by confidentiality. You are legally bound to report, to respond and report. When a law has been broken or someone is making the accusation, the allegation that a law has been broken, you are not the investigator. You are the reporter of that, that allegation. You must 
report it. No ifs, no buts. In matters of abuse, you must report. This is a legal matter. Talking here particularly of, of child abuse. Child abuse, you must report. As church leaders, we must recognize that in situations of physical and sexual abuse, although a sin has occurred, whereas an accusation of sexual abuse against a child, a crime has been committed. This is not simply a church matter. This is a case, not simply a case of church discipline. Whenever someone has been abused, a law has been broken, it's a legal matter, and it must be referred to the appropriate authorities. Again, we can dig into the details of this later on in the discussion. But this is why I wanted to at least grasp hold of this. We are not trained investigators. We're not forensic scientists. We, we don't have the skills to do it, and neither are we responsible to it. You'll make a bigger mess of the situation if you think of yourself as the investigator. Where a child comes and, and alleges abuse, you are the reporter and you are the caregiver, not the investigator. We are not trained. It's never our job to think that we should investigate, and it's neither is it appropriate for us to do so. So what if the situation involves a pastor or a volunteer? What if the accusation is against somebody in leadership in the church? Far too often, it can be tempting to want to deal with it quietly when we're not completely persuaded by the accusation. But the, by far, the best response, even if, and, and I, I know of pastors who have been falsely accused. There's a good friend of mine who's a youth minister in a church in my town who was falsely accused and as he served prison time until his accuser admitted she was falsely accusing him. So I know that happens. I'm not discounting that. That does happen. But the best response is always to err on the side of transparency and openness, particularly with the congregation. So the temptation is to try to keep this private so that we don't cause, stir things up until we know all the facts. That's the temptation. That's an understandable temptation. We don't, want to, uh, we, don't, we don't want to affect this man's reputation or this woman's reputation. And so we want to keep it quiet. But I'm telling you that that will do more harm in the long run than, than good. The best response is always transparency. See, when you do so, you're not declaring judgment. You're not saying that we believe this person is guilty. You're not saying that we believe that crime has been committed here. We're saying we have a policy and we're implementing the policy. And the policy is when an accusation is made, whether it's credible or incredible, if an accusation is made, we are bound by our policy to communicate and to report and to remove this person until it's resolved. That's all we're doing. We're implementing our policy. We're not making any judgment here. We're not many, making any, um, uh, uh, sus- we're not erring on the side of suspicion here. We're just implementing a policy. That's why that policy is so important. Because it gives you something that you can really step behind and it then does the work for you. Again, you're not declaring judgment. Suspending a person from all positions of leadership is not a statement about that person's innocence or guilt. Rather, it is a proactive step to validate the seriousness of the claim. You're not validating the truthfulness of the claim. You're validating the seriousness of the claim. 
Because whether or not the accusation is true, the last thing you want to do is to suggest that you're not taking it seriously. For were you to do so, then were there to be an actual case of abuse, that person will not report it to you because will not feel safe to do so. You're not validating the truthfulness, you're validating the seriousness of the accusation. And you're also validating the bravery of the accused stepping forward, even were the accusation false. Your decision to take it seriously sends a signal to genuine victims that you will also take them seriously. You notify the church that an action has been taken. You suspend the accused from positions within the church. You make it clear that you are not in a position at this stage to pass judgment, but you are actively working with all legal authorities, that they would do their job and you're supporting them in their job and allowing them to investigate the claims being made. Acting immediately will do far more good than hiding it and having to act later. I'm telling you, more churches have fallen on this matter than any other. Even when there is no abuse, when there's false accusations, the fact that the church is found to be covering up, that they knew about the accusation and they didn't do anything about it, does more harm to the integrity and the witness of that church than anything else. If every employee, if every ministry volunteer, if every church member has affirmed your policy, of safe, your safeguarding policy, then they should not object to it being carried out. So if they've, if they've been through the training, if they know the language, if they've submitted themselves to the policy, if they approve of the policy, then when an accusation has been made, you say to them, look, look, we love you, we care about you, we don't know if this is true or false, we're, we're really concerned about the seriousness, but we have a policy, we have to ask you to step aside and we ask you to help us in this matter as we come alongside you. We're not judging you, we're not making any statement of judgment at this point. You're still fully a member of our church. We love you. We care about you. But we're stepping forward with this investigation. We must be sure that we are not more concerned about protecting the reputation of our church than we are about protecting the well-being of potential victims. A concern to prevent scandal from harming the name or the reputation of the church, or a leader in the church, is never, ever a good motivation for failing to be transparent. The reputation of the church becomes compromised when the church looks like we're actively working to cover up scandal, rather than to pursue truth in the pursuit of the care of victims. So you're not investigators. We're reporters, your caregivers, your pastors, your shepherds, your members, your burden sharers. Take those accusations seriously. Report it. Implement your policy. Let it, let it go through all the steps that you've outlined. Something that's really helpful, just to give you a, a biblical point of reference for this, is Romans 12 and 13. Romans 12 and 13 is the intersection there from end of chapter 12 into chapter 13. I think it gives us a really good helpful framework for this. So Romans 12 verse 17 says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, 
live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But then he says in chapter 13, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. So you see this, this contrast here. Do not repay evil for evil. So you're not, you're not out there to get vengeance. or to, uh, So you're out there still to show love and truth and compassion and care. Your motivation isn't hatred or vengeance. It's about creating a culture of grace and love and mercy. You're not repaying evil for evil. But, chapter 13, let everyone be subject to the ruling authority, to the government, which is our partner in this, in this work. All authority is instituted by God. And so, church, submit this to the governing authorities. Let them do their job. In many ways, that is God's intended means to enact his rightful justice in situations like this. So in summary, listen, report, respond, communicate. Listen, report, respond, and communicate. Let your plan of response be marked around those pillars as leaders of your church. Not long after I became a Christian, I began pursuing full-time Christian ministry. I became a Christian when I was 18. I planted a church when I was just 24 years old. I was in a very unhealthy way. My ministry became my hiding place. In many ways, as I look back on, on that, I can see how that actually hurt me. No one knew my story. I never told anybody. Not even my wife. Not even my mother. I busied myself trying to minister to others in their brokenness while failing to recognize my own. In the process, I feel that often I hurt others. I allowed destructive thoughts and fears to haunt me, that I failed to really get close to people. I was living two lives, ministering with the appearance of wholeness and yet rattled by insecurity and fear. About three years ago, I realized I couldn't go on that way. If I continued to live like that, then I would destroy everything. It was at that point I realized what a wonderful gift God had given me in my church, and I didn't see it. He had placed me in a church that loved me deeply, that cared about me genuinely. I needed to share my story with my elders, with my pastors. I needed biblical discipleship to speak truth into my life. I needed accountability to help me think through the guilt and the shame 
and the lies I was believing. I needed to serve from my brokenness, not a pretense of wholeness. And so I still feel in many ways that I'm still on that journey. Even being here tonight is part of that journey. But I can truthfully say from this vantage point that the church, by God's grace, has become the dearest place on earth to me. It's the safest place on earth to me. And I pray it may become that for you as well. Listen to these words from Spurgeon. He said this, All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on earth? As I've already said, the church, it is faulty. But that is no excuse for you not being part of it. The church is not an institution for perfect people, but it is a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. Listen to this. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and shall grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, where they shall be protected from the wolves that prey. It is the home for God's family, still imperfect as it is. It is the dearest place on earth. Let me pray for us. Father, I know as I've shared some of these things tonight, it lands in so many different ways in different people's minds and hearts. And perhaps for some it's painful to hear. For others, maybe it's just confusing. But I pray that in all of this, that we would see the beauty of Christ and his church. We would see the gift of Christ and his church. And we would receive it as your gift to us. We would commit our lives to it, that we would make you known as we commit ourselves to each other and commit ourselves to the work of, of seeing healthy churches and starting churches that become beacons of hope and light in desperately dark places. Lord, I pray for each one of us in this room tonight that we would hear your voice, that we would know your love, <coughs> that we would sense your touch, we would feel safe in the midst of your people. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.